Well, let me just acknowledge my co-author here, uh, Scott Riding, uh, is an undergraduate in my department, and uh, he is responsible for the PowerPoint presentation. Looks very nice, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and was a great help on this paper. Uh, so our, our primary season in 2008 was unique, to say the least. Major questions uh, were raised in both parties about race, religion, and gender in the context of a presidential election. Uh, but it, historically, it's been difficult to study some of these biases in the electorate uh, using survey data. One, because in some of these cases, we haven't had uh, a lot of experience with these candidates, and the other, because we have problems with social desirability, and I'll talk more about why that is in a moment. Uh, the crux of this paper is that we partnered uh, with the uh, Harris Interactive Harris Poll uh, to conduct a uh, – to put some questions on one of their national surveys in the midst of the, uh, right in the heat of the uh, 2008 primary uh, nomination campaign and used a list experiment, uh, which I'll explain in a minute for those that are, uh, haven't seen those yet, although we've seen a lot of list experiments in this electoral context, so I, hopefully everyone's seen one by now. And, and the attempt here is to, uh, to get, find a question technique in a survey that allows us to look beyond the social desirability bias and, and uh, use some of these techniques to our advantage. The, the theoretical hook we're using is that of social norms. Uh, so norms, uh, according to one definition, are societal expectations enforced without need of judicial coercion. So there are societal expectations that are informally enforced. Uh, these can be uh, self-enforced through guilt. They can be socially enforced through social pressure. They can be codified in, in law, but they don't require that to, uh, to be enforced. Uh, and so we, can, we recognize a lot of norms. Uh, we don't cut in line. Uh, typically, we tip in a restaurant when the service is okay. Uh, voting is a social norm, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and norms also exist in our expression of attitudes. And, and it's this very, the existence of these very norms that lead to social desirability problems in surveys that lead to over-reporting of whether or not you voted or whether or not you go to church uh, and, and uh, lead to trouble with questions. We have a lot of trouble or a lot of history in, in political science with questions about race and, and the trouble they, they, uh, uh, they cause because of social desirability. And so uh, – and then I, I want to make a distinction – uh, between uh, the recognition or the existence of a norm, uh, meaning that, that there's some public acceptance of it, and the internalization of the norm or, or what happens in private. So uh, uh, there's a difference between a norm that exists in our collective consciousness and whether or not we follow the norm when no one is looking. Uh, so uh, this has uh, implications in political science uh, when we talk about voting, which is, is inherently a, a, a private act. No, one, no one's looking, typically, unless you're at a touchscreen machine and you know, somebody tall is behind you. All right. Uh, so as we define it in this paper, we, we look at what we call the norm of equality. 
and we define it as a widely accepted constraint against expressing negative views about a hypothetical politician based solely on the knowledge of the politician's race, gender, or religion. So we want to see how this norm of equality affects uh, voter attitudes about presidential candidates. And we, we investigated in the, uh, in the context of gender equality, uh, uh, race, and, and religious equality. Again, uh, there's this important distinction between uh, the existence of a norm and the internalization of the norm. So we have uh, a, a couple of different measures. You measure the existence of a norm with a direct question about characteristics. So this is the question that Harris had used once before in a survey, and so we reused it again. If you thought he or she was otherwise well qualified, would you vote for any of the following who was running for president of the United States? And then they had a bunch of characteristics, uh, and we use a, a few of these uh, uh, that matched uh, characteristics of, of existing candidates, and you'll see why in a minute. And you know, people were able to say definitely would not vote for, probably would not, probably would, and definitely would. Okay? And we're interested in the not side of that equation. And then the, uh, the internalization of a norm or, or, the, or the norm, the existence of the norm in private is measured by a list experiment. So for the, for the uninitiated on list experiments, they are a way to uh, measure these uh, uh, attitudes indirectly. So typically what you do is you have a list of four items uh, or three items. And in this case, we use four. Below, below are four things that sometimes make people angry or upset. After you read all four statements, please indicate how many of them upset you. We do not need to know which ones upset you, just how many. Okay, this four-item list, uh, the way gasoline prices keep going up, professional athletes getting million-plus-dollar million dollar salaries, requiring that seatbelts be used when driving, and large corporations polluting the environment, serve as the baseline. The control group uh, uh, gets this four-item list. And then the five items, or the fi uh, a five-item list that has those four plus an additional item is given to experimental groups. In our case, we had eight experimental groups. This is a large end uh, survey, about uh, 2,300, as I recall. So one group got, uh, as an additional item, a black person serving as president, Another group got Barack Obama serving as president, so we, we decided to test the actual name in a separate group. Uh, another group got Hillary Clinton serving as president and, an, and a woman serving as president. Uh, another group got a Mormon serving as president and Mitt Romney uh, serving as president to another group yet. And then finally, uh, a Baptist serving as president or Mike Huckabee serving as president. So these eight groups plus the, plus the, uh, the baseline group gives us nine Nine groups, eight treatments and a, and, a, and a control. So what are our expectations? Well, uh, clearly over time, uh, so we, we, we take a, a pretty quick look at the literature in the paper. You see that there's a lot of evidence over time. There are some direct questions about uh, race and gender, even in the presidential context. And you see some very clear trends over time where there's a public acceptance of uh, black candidates of women running for office where, you know, 30, 50 years ago, you had pretty significant proportions of the public uh, saying they would not vote for a candidate who was black or, or, or a woman for president. Uh, those disappear in recent years. Uh, whether or not those norms are internalized is a little bit uh, uh, up in the air. You, on the one hand, uh, as you saw in abundance yesterday, uh, there's uh, measurable racial resentment, uh, 
it's difficult to, to see that uh, uh, disappear in, in 2008. But on the other hand, you have the disappearance of something like the Wilder effect. So there's this paper that was just published in the JOP um, that suggests that, that the Wilder effect, uh, uh, where, where people in pre-election polls seem to be uh, reluctant uh, to, uh, to state opposition to a black candidate, that has, that has disappeared. There seems to be some movement toward the internalization of this norm. Uh, you see in... Um, in trends of, of, of polling that there is a norm for, for a woman candidate, but to the extent that it's been internalized, again, is uncertain. We see in the, in the gender and politics literature, as far as I can tell, at least, that, that uh, voting for a woman for president or for another office depends a lot on the context, a lot of, of, of the issue context and other things, the electoral context. And so whether or not that norm can be activated uh, in, in, across the board uh, is a bit of a of an open question. Um, there is very limited work on, uh, on the question of religion and, and social norms in terms of this exact uh, question. There is uh, even less work on, on uh, a Mormon presidential candidate. In fact, there's no real work. Uh, there is a little bit of work in the, in, uh, by a, uh, a guy that uh, studies uh, Mormon history and literature, and, and he, it's, really, it's a, quite an interesting book about how uh, our general notion of religious tolerance in this country is uh, often set aside for religious minorities, and the way it's done is that they are uh, recategorized in people's minds as an ethnic minority. And so you, you instead of, so if you have, a, if you have a, a, an internalized norm of religious tolerance and you want to uh, express bias towards a religious minority, the, the easiest way to, to kind of work that out in, in, in your own mind, I, I suppose, according to his research, is to reclassify this group as an ethnic minority and, and sort of pair it with unpopular ethnic groups. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in the context of, of the 2008 nomination that there's no norm for a Mormon presidential candidate, uh, anywhere from a third to... Uh, even up to 40% in some polls, uh, people were willing to directly say uh, that they wouldn't vote for a Mormon for president. Uh, and that leads us to the thought that, of course, it's uh, not internalized either. If it doesn't quite exist yet, then it can't uh, be clearly internalized. There's very little uh, in terms of a Baptist as well, uh, although we did elect a Baptist president, suggesting that, that, that a norm probably exists and it's probably been internalized at least to, to some extent. All right. So here are the results of uh, the basic results of the of the uh, list experiment. So the green bars are the generic characteristics, the blue bars are uh, the candidate names, and uh, the asterisks down by their names are hard to see. Uh, but what we get is a a, a nine percent estimate for a black person serving as president that is not statistically significant. Uh, it goes up uh, to thirty three percent for Obama. Uh, the, the estimate for women, 25%, is very close to a uh, published paper in POQ uh, in 2007. I think they had it at 27%. And uh, for Hillary Clinton, goes up just slightly to 30%. For Mormon, it, uh, the estimate, uh, 27%, goes up to 47% for Romney. And for Baptist, they're both uh, not significant. So Romney and Mormon are significant. Clinton and women are significant. 
uh, Baptist and Huckabee are not. Obama is and black person is not. Oh, I'm sorry. So you take, uh, thank you. Uh, you take the uh, four item baseline and calculate a mean number. You take the five item uh, list and calculate a mean and you, you difference the two and multiply it by 100 and that's what you get here. Percent angry or upset. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, okay. So one of the interesting things here is, of course, that in most cases, or at least in the in the in the Mormon and 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 black person groups, the the percent angry or upset by the specific candidate shoots through the roof, uh, suggesting that there's uh, uh, you know other characteristics in in uh, uh, about the candidate that people don't like in addition to the, the one we isolate. The other interesting thing to think about is to what extent in this particular nomination campaign, even with the generic characteristic when we give it, were people actually thinking of Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. So it's, it's hard, I think, to separate the two. And I think what we might be getting here is um, – uh, for, for example, for uh, a Mormon serving as president is people thinking of Mitt Romney or some of them thinking of Mitt Romney and then thinking uh, uh, and, and, and our, it's, it's our ability essentially to isolate the, the effect of that characteristic on Mitt Romney. On the other hand, uh, there's some other evidence that we don't present in the paper that uh, uh, most voters were not aware that, that Mormon or Romney was a Mormon. So – they couldn't name his religion. They couldn't. Uh, they didn't. Uh, have, there wasn't high awareness. So uh, I'm uncertain as to uh, how much of the the effect for Mormon is as people thinking of Romney. Okay, we we were able to break down the, the list experiment results. Uh, the the sample sizes in each group, in each experimental group, are uh, about 230 or so. So you you can make some basic. Uh, comparisons and, and get a handle on uh, what types of respondents are more likely to be angry or upset. Uh, so, for example, uh, here under uh, Obama, 33% uh, of all respondents were angry or upset. That goes up to 48% among Republicans, up to 73% among uh, those who were born again, self-identified. Uh, but you don't see any movement uh, – uh, for a black person serving as president. It, it's uh, statistically insignificant across the board uh, in, the, in the things that we looked at. Uh, for Clinton and uh, a woman serving as president, one of the interesting things here is that there's a clear uh, gender effect. Why this is interesting in part is because in this published uh, list experiment in Public Opinion Quarterly that was published in 2007, they didn't find an effect. Uh, for gender that, that we do find. Um, and so the, the fact that it, that it uh, climbs up to 43% among men and is insignificant among women I think is not surprising to me, but it's surprising in the context that in the other published study it, it wasn't that way. Uh, for Romney, uh, what's interesting here to me is that the uh, percentages comparing Romney and Mormon are – dramatically different until you get up here to born again, where 64% uh, were upset at Romney serving as president and 
uh, were upset by a Mormon serving as president, suggesting that much of the concern about Romney was because he was a Mormon among uh, born-again Christians. Uh, and then yeah, there's really nothing going on here for Baptists and Huckabee. Uh, uh, I think there's some uh, possibilities here under uh, uh, Democrat and so on, but I don't think our sample sizes are really large enough to, to get enough power there to get st the standard statistical significance. So uh, Now, what, what you have here is a comparison of the list experiment with the blue bars and the direct question in the green. And uh, so this is kind of the crux of our, of our paper where we're trying to suggest that uh, the direct question uh, for, uh, for these characteristics compared to the list experiment helps us to know whether the uh, norm exists and whether it's been internalized. So if you look at if you compare uh, the uh, percentages for a black person, uh, the direct question is at 14% that say that they uh, probably or definitely would not vote for, and the list experiment is 9% uh, who are angry or upset. Now, admittedly, these are very different questions, but uh, the interesting part is that you, you get comparable results for some of the categories and, and, and not for others. Uh, so what's most interesting to me here is that you get a consistent result for race where I think uh, there's pretty clear evidence that this norm exists. People do not want to answer in a direct question in very high proportions that they would not uh, vote for a black person for president. And we, we're unable to detect that in the list experiment as well, suggesting that the norm exists and it has been internalized for a large uh, proportion of the population. For a woman serving as president, uh, it's a different prospect. You get, I, I think, evidence that there is a, a norm with a fairly low percentage in the direct question at 16 percent that goes up much higher under the list experiment, uh, suggesting that there is a norm, but it hasn't quite been internalized, and it's been uh, not been internalized for, for specific subgroups, uh, particularly men uh, in some cases. And then for the evidence for Mormon is uh, interesting because it, there's evidence that we don't have a, a social norm and that it hasn't been internalized. Uh, and in, in the Baptist case, we, we don't get any uh, significant result. So uh, again, uh, there's a norm of racial equality. It exists. There's no measurable bias. Uh, we get a norm of gender equality uh, but and find some measurable bias in some groups uh, consistent with the literature that has these contextual effects uh, for, for voting for women candidates. Uh, there's no norm of a religious equality for Mormons, uh, and there's considerable measurable bias, and we don't get it for Baptists, and, uh, uh, and there's no measurable bias, and that's it. Thank you. today and it's always good to be back at Ohio State. It seems like we were just here uh, for 2004, uh, but time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> so uh, my title today is uh, appropriately generic, 
uh, religion in the 2008 election. Um, what I'm really going to be doing is uh, trying to fit two things into the presentation. Uh, most of the, the core of what I want to talk about comes from a recent APSA paper uh, that I wrote with Ken Wald and David Leahy uh, titled, Is There a Religious Left? Evidence from the 2006 and 2008 AMES. So I want to acknowledge um, their significant contributions to this project. I also collaborated with uh, Ken and Dave on proposals to the ANES to get some new questions on, uh, which I'll be talking about in the presentation. Um, but what I want to do first before I get to talking specifically about the religious left is to talk just a bit more generally about uh, how religion played out in the 2008 election, since that's not going to be directly covered much depth by other papers. And then I'll transition into, uh, into talking about uh, the religious left. So just a, a little outline here. Uh, first, an overview of religion and vote choice in the last couple of elections. And we'll see that uh, the much vaunted God gap does persist. But there are some important caveats which we'll talk about. Um, I want to then move into uh, more of the material from the, the paper, uh, which begins with a discussion of um, the theoretical problems with the standard God-gap approach uh, to understanding the connection between religion and voting. Um, then I'll introduce the new uh, NES religiosity measures that appeared in the pilot study in 06 and then um, some again in 08. I'll talk about what those allow us to learn about the religious left and then um, I'll wrap up by talking about our theme um, dutifully uh, was 2008 transformational. So let me begin with just a couple of general slides to give you a sense of the landscape um, with respect to religion over the last couple of presidential elections. Um, this shows you a two-party vote by uh, church attendance. The, uh, the uh, lined bars are, represent carries, share the two-party votes. So you can just subtract from 100. And it's the Republican total. And uh, you can see that Obama uh, does a bit better than Kerry did uh, among those who reported that they did not attend services. Um, he does quite a bit better among those who uh, reported less than weekly attendance, but some attendance at worship services. Uh, and there's not much difference, not any discernible difference uh, in the category of, of frequent attenders once a week or more. Um, this is not terribly different from what we found in, in the exit polls, although uh, the exit polls show uh, more improvement for Obama uh, pretty much across the board in every, just about every category. Um, and we don't, in particular, uh, you notice, uh, if I can get this to change here. Uh, this is a bit different. This plus eight is a bit different than what we find in, in ANES, but basically uh, not drastically different uh, overall picture there. Uh, and so just back up for a second. If we think about this as this is sort of the most generic version of what you get in analyses of religion and politics. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that appears in media accounts and and even some scholarly accounts that uh, this is the God gap, okay, 62 versus 38. 
So the God gap grew slightly according to this sort of basic measure from 04 to 08, but didn't disappear. I'm going to argue the rest of the presentation that the God gap is overblown as a way to think about religion's impact. It's a one-sided view of it. But nonetheless, it is interesting that this didn't go away between 04 and 08. Just another general landscape slide here of the vote by religious tradition using the categories that have become standard on the ANES, religious tradition breakdown. And you can see there are some changes, but most of them are not huge from 04 to 08. A couple that will jump out at you, obviously African-American Protestants were, to say the least, supportive of Obama. There is precisely one black Protestant that voted for McCain. I figured that that falls under the noise heading. But obviously Kerry did well among that group also. A couple of the interesting trends, I think, to look at in future elections would be among Catholics. I just recently finished another piece with Dave Legge on the Catholic vote in 08. And what seems pretty clear is that there's not much movement among non-Hispanic white Catholics. They split 50-50, literally, in 04 in the NES. And McCain actually did just slightly better than Bush among non-Hispanic white Catholics, although there's really not much difference at all there. But Hispanic Catholics is the group where we do see some significant movement toward Obama. Now, the sample size, obviously, in 04 is quite small. It's better in 08 because of the oversample. And also we find a significant improvement for Obama over Kerry among those with no religious affiliation, seculars. Now, this is a little different in the ANES than in many other polls. Most other surveys in 04 had seculars voting for Kerry at above 60% rate, sometimes almost as high as what Obama shows here in 08. So there may be something a little quirky about the 2004 NES sample that contributes to that difference. And if you look at the exit polls, you can see what I'm referring to. Look at unaffiliated Kerry. They had at 67 in 04 and Obama at 75 in 08. So the seculars in the ANES are a bit less democratic than what they show up in exit polls and in some of the Pew surveys and some of the work that John Green and colleagues have done. And that's something that might be interesting to investigate down the road. But by and large, I think that the picture that we get is that Obama did do somewhat better than Kerry among certain religious voters. Of course, the obvious point to make is that he did better among voters, period, than Kerry. He was a stronger candidate. And he especially did better among minorities, as we saw very clearly in yesterday's presentations. 
that tends to swamp a lot of these other differences. Okay? Uh, but I, I think it's worth noting some things about the campaign um, that Obama made a very intentional effort to appeal to religious voters in ways that Kerry never did. Um, and so, you know, when I, in response to this question, I get sometimes, why did Obama do better among religious voters than Kerry? Um, my off-the-cuff answer is he tried. Uh, he made an effort, uh, first of all, by emphasizing his personal uh, faith journey. Uh, and I phrase it that way intentionally, that he came across as a seeker, someone that found uh, faith later in life, was very open about that, uh, and open about the ways that his personal faith influenced his uh, public policy positions and, and his lifestyle and so forth. And that is very appealing uh, to many evangelicals, uh, particularly younger evangelicals, uh, and also to, uh, to other people of faith. And Kerry never was comfortable doing that. Also, Obama's campaign tried much harder to cultivate a religious left. They had well-organized outreach efforts, uh, religion coordinators that uh, were actually listened to uh, and incorporated into strategy. Um, example of some innovations, they held American Values house parties uh, during the, the primary and general election seasons, uh, organized to try to, to target uh, more moderate evangelicals and mainline Protestants. Uh, Obama was much more comfortable than many Democratic candidates speaking in the language of religion and, and values. Um, he spoke carefully about abortion and his much of the materials that were distributed um, to religious groups mentioned abortion reduction as uh, his approach to the issue. And then finally, uh, the theme that I wanted to emphasize for the remainder, much of the remainder of the presentation, is that Obama appealed to communitarian Christians. And I'll talk more about exactly what I mean by that, but essentially this, the distinction is between those that see their faith in the context of a religious community as an outward-directed faith versus those who view it more as an individualistic notion. Uh, I am pious. I am religious is something that happens uh, internally, right? And so Obama, for a number of reasons, I think, was able to appeal to communitarians um, in ways that some other candidates would not have been. Okay. So let me talk now about the God gap, sort of the standard uh, approach to religion and politics in the voting literature, um, and then why we might want to rethink it. So the conventional wisdom that we get in a lot of popular and scholarly accounts boils down essentially to this notion that more religious people vote more Republican, that religiosity leads fairly uh, directly to political conservatism. And we've already looked at some evidence of that, right? Uh, that particularly among whites, church attendance is highly correlated with Republican identification and voting. As was mentioned in yesterday's session on race, uh, this model doesn't work particularly well uh, for racial minorities. Um, you saw from earlier slide, it, it doesn't work at all for African Americans because there's no variation, um, but it, it doesn't work particularly well for Hispanics either. Um, the, statistically speaking, there is no difference across categories of uh, religious attendance uh, for um, Hispanics uh, other than 
the in between the moderate group that attends less than weekly actually show up as the most supportive of obama more so than either the weekly or the never attenders although it's not not a big difference but for whites this has been the standard the standard model but even for non-hispanic whites there's there are some serious theoretical problems with this approach because the standard measures of religiosity that we get on surveys are oriented in a way that leads to tradition specific bias and what i mean by that is that different religious traditions have different norms for what would constitute being a good member of that tradition and most of the norms that are measured by standard religiosity items and surveys are norms in the evangelical protestant tradition or perhaps the protestant tradition more broadly things like church attendance bible reading daily prayer those are normative in the evangelical tradition but somewhat less so in other traditions and i think more important theoretically standard survey items tend to measure only individualistic notions of what it means to be religious and ignore a communal dimension so for some religious groups particularly for catholic christians and by that i mean not only roman catholics but some mainline protestants like episcopalians and lutherans the notion of what it means to be part of the church is more communitarian god chooses one and seals that covenant and baptism you become part of a community from the start that's celebrated in a communal feast every sunday the eucharist and these are rituals that are done not only literally in community with others but in virtual community with other catholics around the world and indeed through the ages that follow the same liturgy so there's a strong sense in the actual practice of faith of community and then even more so in the way that that clergy instruct parishioners to live in service to others again an outward directed notion of what it means to be religious and the standard god get view ignores the role of religious commitment in a communitarian sense but it also ignores the possibility that religiosity could lead to progressive political orientations and there's quite a bit of cross-national evidence historical evidence of instances where religiosity does contribute to progressive political action a lot of the history of social movements abolition sanctuary movement suffrage movement and etc involved at their at the core religious people acting in in progressive ways and so the god get view ignores that possibility it's basically a one-sided view of how religion might influence political behavior so what my colleagues and i wanted to do was develop some measures that could be implemented broadly on surveys like ans that might tap into this communitarian dimension and overcome some of the tradition specific bias that existed 
with existing measures and with with current measures i should say of religiosity and there's some empirical work that demonstrates the tradition specific bias that i referenced actually going back to some of the this the data that quinn and i worked with as graduate students here from buckeye state polls and surveys of ohio we're able to show that the relative importance of different religious behaviors varies significantly across traditions so what's normative what people feel is important varied and so we wanted to try to overcome that bias and and tap into this communitarian dimension and one of the important components of that is to try to get a sense of of what it means to an individual to be a good member of of his or her religious tradition so we submitted proposals through the ans online commons it's probably a lot of you are aware that that was a process that involved several rounds of of revision and cuts mostly cuts and the way that that things worked out with the pilot study was that the ans investigators identified topics from the proposals and then wrote the questions we had input on that but ultimately the questions i'll show you in a second weren't exactly the ones that we submitted and in some cases that was good because our wording was improved in other cases we're not so sure that it was improved but in any case that's the way that things worked also i would note that the things i'm going to show you from here on in are items asked only of people who had previously self-identified as christians so i you know don't ask me why why are you asking muslims about the divinity of christ that we're not these were folks who had already identified as christians okay so a couple of the items i'll just talk about two that survived in in one form or another on the 2008 study there were a few more that were asked in 06 and and quite a few that were in the proposal for 06 that didn't didn't make it onto the pilot study the first item is belief about the eucharist the 2006 pilot study version which comes pretty close to what we had proposed asks do you believe that for the people who take holy communion the bread and wine become the body and blood of jesus christ or do you believe that does not happen and that's fairly close to what we had recommended i think our version actually quoted from the liturgy and and asked do the bread and wine become for us the body and blood of christ and it was pointed out to us that that might be ambiguous and so this was it was changed to this wording in 2008 the the question wording was changed fairly late in the process due to some feedback in in focus groups and pre-tests from respondents and it was changed slightly to read do you believe that when people take holy communion the bread and wine become the body and blood of jesus christ or do you believe that does not happen and and the change there is that this for the people change to when people take okay and so it didn't alter the distributions much turns out it did alter what was being measured i'll talk about that in a second and you see that we get fairly high percentages saying yes here over 60 percent 
Uh, some of that certainly is due to um, what we like to refer to as the halo effect, this social desirability that people uh, want to appear religious. Um, and so some of this, like any religiosity measure, is going to be inflated. Um, but we do find that um, those percentages vary across religious traditions in the direction you would expect, uh, but in perhaps a greater magnitude. Uh, Follow-up question, how important is this belief to you personally? And here you begin to see that the distributions look a bit different across the two different question wordings. And we actually, the variable that we used in uh, analyzing these items, first for the pilot study and then 08, uh, incorporates this importance item so we get a bit more variation. The second item uh, that appeared on both studies, uh, their set of items, uh, really gets closer to the core of what we were interested in. That is, what do people consider important in their own religious traditions? And so this first filter question asks, have there been times in your life when you tried to be a good Christian, or is that not something you've tried to do? That question in and of itself may not be terribly interesting, but you'll see why it's asked that way in a second. Um, we do get a few honest uh, response. I mean, uh, <laughs> response that say no uh, to this question. Uh, 6% in, in 06 and uh, 8% approximately in 2008. And not surprisingly, they look quite a bit different in their behavior than those uh, who say yes. Um, the reason for that filter is so we can ask this question which really is closer to what, what we're trying to measure. When you've tried to be a good Christian, which did you try to do more? Avoid doing sinful things yourself or help other people. Um, and you can see that uh, although the question wording was identical, the distributions look a bit different across the two studies, but paradoxically, uh, the measurement properties are very similar uh, for this one. So it's sort of an interesting juxtaposition. Um, in 08, which I'll focus on, uh, we get about 48% who choose the more uh, pietistic option of avoiding personal sin versus 52% uh, saying that um, being a, a good Christian involves helping other people. Um, now, what we did for the 06 and 08 studies then was to conduct a factor analysis of, of all the religiosity items that were available, and we found, uh, as we expected, uh, in the pilot study where we had a lot of measures, uh, a, a pretty clean two-factor solution where the first factor contained church attendance, prayer, uh, religion is important, the typical uh, piety sort of items that we find on surveys. The second dimension had this tried uh, to be a good Christian item and the uh, Eucharist item. Uh, now, in 2008, we don't get this, the same um, factor solution. Uh, the, the Eucharist item no longer loads with that second uh, communitarian factor um, as it did in 06, and we're pretty sure that that has to do with the wording change um, from 06 to 08. But the good news is that the behavior of these variables as predictors, that is the two different dimensions of religiosity, um, work the same across the two uh, data sets. And in fact, if we just used that try to help others as the measure of uh, our second dimension of, commun of communitarian religiosity, uh, the results don't, don't change from what we were able to get from the factor scores. So this is just um, a simple uh, uh, 
mean comparison to give you a sense of how these things vary across different religious groups. Um, and it, uh, this is the, ranging from zero to one uh, scale, uh, uh, rescaled. And you can see that, as we would expect, evangelical Protestants classified by denomination score higher on the individual piety factor uh, compared to the mainline Protestants and Catholics. Uh, Catholics are the highest on the communitarian religiosity factor, uh, although uh, mainline Protestants are clearly different than evangelicals. And this is consistent with what we would have expected from, from prior research. Um, African Americans score quite high on, on religiosity measures, and so it's not surprising that um, they're the highest on the piety score. Uh, we might have expected a bit higher communitarian score, but still it is a, a, a bit um, less than, than Catholics and mainlines. Um, so what we do next in the paper then is to present a bunch of models, um, and I'll show some of those here and try to, to move through them fairly quickly to get to the punchline. Um, but what we did is uh, begin by modeling party identification uh, in the, these two studies. And what I want to highlight um, is the, the first uh, two rows here uh, because we find that both dimensions of religiosity, this individual and communitarian, have significant influences on partisanship um, in both these studies. And importantly, the signs are flipped. Okay. So the, the communitarians, uh, we have a negative sign here on the, the seven-point party ID scale as the DV. Um, for uh, the individual piety group, it's what we would expect. That sort of fits with the God gap notion. And the other thing to point out in these models is that we have controls not only for some demographic characteristics, um, but also for religious groupings, religious tradition. So, you know, we feel pretty confident that we're not simply picking up differences between Catholics and, and Protestants, but actually some some differences in, in uh, how these groups are religious. Uh, we go on to, to look at the influence of these religiosity dimensions on issue attitudes. Um, this table shows what are sometimes called culture war issues, abortion, uh, gay rights, and women's role. Um, here I'm, I'm using the, the standard um, measure uh, so the old question on abortion. But if we use the new version with the various scenarios, um, we get the, the same pattern. Um, a little gay rights index built from the, the multiple indicators and then the seven-point women's role scale. And again, um, draw your attention to the first two rows here. Uh, again, we find significant effects for both, but with the signs flipped, which, uh, again, is, is consistent with the notion of... Um, sort of a, a religious left uh, lurking uh, in the electorate. The, the effect sizes for uh, the individual religiosity are higher. They're stronger than for the communitarian religiosity dimension. Uh, but still both are significant in these models. Then if we look at models of attitudes on social welfare issues, this is really the most important table in a sense because theoretically what we would expect is for this is where the communitarian religiosity should come through um, in sort of a social gospel sense. And, and that uh, is, in fact, what we find, that 
significant effects are present for this communitarian religiosity dimension, but not for the more traditional individual piety measures. So religiosity in terms of um, an you know, individual sense of, of devotion and involvement doesn't predict attitudes on these social welfare issues, um, but our new measures do. Um, and, and that's consistent with what we would expect. And again, that's net of, of party and a, a series of, of other controls. And then finally, uh, we look at, at some very basic models of vote choice. Uh, these just include the same predictors that um, the uh, issue and party models uh, did. So we don't have in, in the models on the slide here a series of issue controls, but I'll talk about what happens when we add those in a second. Uh, but again, we see the same pattern, that for the individual piety dimension, um, the expected negative relationship to probability of voting for Obama, um, positive relationship for the communitarian dimension. Um, model one does not include uh, party ID. Um, when we add that to the model, those effects uh, remain significant. Now, I'll mention a couple of things that you won't see on the slide, but you might be wondering about. Um, some of the models that we saw yesterday had church attendance uh, as independent variables, and, and almost invariably that washed out uh, with other controls. And that's what I find as well, uh, that if you simply use church attendance as the measure of re religiosity, um, it doesn't hold up in multivariate models. If you measure it a bit better with a three or four item index, uh, then you do find significant effects. Um, the other thing to mention, of course, we've discussed several times this weekend, a lot of these effects operate through uh, partisanship and ideology. Um, so in some ways, the fact that, that we still get direct effects is, is sort of surprising. Um, and then the third thing I'd mention is uh, we have run models where we add ideology as a control. Um, the religion effects persist for both dimensions. When we start adding multiple issues, um, as you might guess, that diminishes the impact of religiosity. But uh, depending on the model specification, um, those effects hang around for, for quite a while, uh, particularly that first dimension of individual piety. Um, so even if you toss in most of the major issues in the 08 campaign, you still find some direct effect. And as we saw from previous slides, we know there's an indirect effect for communitarian religiosity through attitudes on social welfare issues. So to wrap up, uh, then by way of, of conclusion here, uh, there is a communitarian dimension of religiosity that's related to liberal political views. Uh, so in answer, partially answer to the question posed by our APSA paper title, there, there is a religious left in, in some sense. Um, I think the measurement lessons from these two studies uh, on the ANES, the tried to be a good Christian items seem to be the most powerful. Uh, and those are the ones I would recommend that we try to, to put on more, on more surveys. Um, there are still some, some doubts uh, about item wording, particularly on the communion belief items. Uh, Dave Leagy championed those, and uh, Ken and I you know, sort of pled ignorance as, as non-Catholics. But uh, uh, it's pretty clear that, that there's a lot of noise in, in those, and clearly they're very sensitive to wording changes. So more work needs to be done there. Uh, in terms of uh, 
I think, an interesting substantive contribution that the paper makes. Uh, it, it begins to, this measurement strategy begins to allow us to speak uh, in a comparative sense about religion and politics, right? So we, we see evidence in, in these results that American religious progressives are not essentially non-religious, as has been argued in the European case. So I think that that's an interesting insight that comes out of this work. And the takeaway point I hope I've convinced you is that religion's influence on voting behavior goes beyond the standard God gap approach, that is the church attendance gap. Okay, there's more going on here than just that. Okay. So is there a religious left? I just had to find a way to get this photo in. Um, so... Going back to Herb's presentation yesterday morning, um, I, I think he inadvertently left off 0.7, uh, which is uh, that 2008 could be transformational with respect to religion. Um, how might that be? Well, if this, we know now this religious left existed um, in, in 2008, and Obama seemed to be much more effective at activating that group than prior candidates had been. Um, the question going forward is, can he continue that process of attracting uh, particularly younger religious people who we might classify as moderately religious in terms of individual piety, uh, but who would identify themselves as communitarians uh, through these measures? Um, that cohort is entering the electorate and will be growing in size while some of the more pietistic uh, older cohorts will be fading. So this seems to me presents the Democrats with a real opportunity. Um, and thinking more broadly about the system, uh, the political system, the electorate, it, it may present an opportunity for uh, a diminishing of polarization along religious lines. Uh, now, I'm not terribly sanguine about that happening, but... Um, it seems at least that there's a window there. So as Herb uh, rightly pointed out, we won't know the answer to this question until we have the benefit of, uh, of history to look back. But I think it's, it's at least worth keeping an eye on as we move forward. Um, lastly, I'm going to continue with my tradition of showing you pictures that I like uh, from the campaign. And this one comes um, from a friend who teaches at a small college in Indiana, he had a student who uh, came from a small town in southeastern Indiana called North Vernon. It's in uh, Jennings County, which went about 65% for George W. Bush in 04, and that margin dropped by, I think it was about 12 points in, uh, in 08, but it's, it's clearly a red uh, part of the state. Uh, this is the sign, uh, a sign that appeared in North Vernon in advance of the election. <laughs> and it doesn't have much to do with religiosity, but cultural politics more generally, perhaps. And I, I just thought that was, that was a priceless gem, and so any opportunity I have to work that in. Uh, I think that's a church I'm going to set you up. Ah, yeah. look at that. Good. Uh -huh. Thanks, Barry. That's, that's good. Now I, now I feel justified in, in showing this in this talk. So th this is a gem. 
Um, my, uh, my friend that sent this to me in his email uh, said, uh, just remember, you can't spell Obama without Bama. <laughs> so on that note, I will conclude. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Quinn. Um, I'll just have some brief remarks here as I set up. I've been told that Alan's homesick, so we'd like to begin with an opening prayer. Right. Right. I've already prayed silent. Okay. Okay, so uh, we have we have about a half an hour for a discussion. So I think I'm going to move through my comments a little quicker than I intended. Um, really enjoyed these papers. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to review a little bit about uh, what they're about because I think they're both broad and both authors wanted to talk a little bit about religion more generally in 2008. And I'm sure all you do as well. Um, and kind of think about how these papers, what these papers mean when we think about them together. Um, and then offer some, some some suggestions or mild criticisms, some potential issues uh, may exist in the paper, and then hopefully open it up to all you guys. Um, so, so the questions of interest for uh, Monson uh, and writing: How do race, gender, and religion affect voters? Right? How do these key factors uh, affect voters? And so the approach here is kind of uh, one of context. Right? Is there is there a norm? of equality for all these characteristics, right? Is there some sort of um, larger, uh, as you said, collective consciousness, right? And if there is, uh, in terms of equality, does that exist at the individual level as well, right? Do these people really believe these norms? And I think that's a really worthy question. Um, and, and what they find is, yep, these, these norms do really exist, at least with regards to race and gender. However... This doesn't extend to a Mormon, and it uh, doesn't help candidates overcome uh, what might be a true bias, internal bias, uh, with regards to gender. And so the implication, which I, I thought I kind of found hard to believe but really interesting, is that then that Obama, in some way, because of uh, out of these three factors, had an easier time in the election than than Clinton, who was a female, and then uh, Romney, who was Mormon. Right, so Obama's race was less of a, um, a detriment. Uh, jumping to the Maccabee at all paper, right? Are these communitarian measures of religious attitudes helpful? So it's really a, a question about measurement, right? Are we missing something by just concentrating on a very singular perspective of religious practice? And all us, you know, Catholics or or uh, former Catholics or whatever are, are happy to see this uh, research. So. Um, does communitarian attitudes influence partisanship, policy positions, and vote choice? And, um, and, and the findings are, yep, there are, there are certainly different ways of identifying as religious. This kind of limited uh, Protestant evangelical perspective isn't the only way, right? These attitudes have a real value impacting uh, vote choice, partisanship, and uh, positions on moral issues, and, and actually several uh, social welfare issues. So... What these pieces share, um, I think they're very specific and directed, right? Apart from Stephen's presentation that was a little more general about the 2008 uh, election, 
these papers have very specific interests in studying religion, right? And I think they open up a can of worms about how we're supposed to do that going forward. So they're not, they're not along the general lines of uh, the papers yesterday that were basically trying to explain the 2008 election, right? Um, and then I, I, what I really liked is this kind of general concern for measurement and, and modeling religious attitudes. So in, in Monson's case, we had this concern for social desirability effects that led to this list experiment. Um, in Maccabee's case, we had uh, concern with um, limitations over these t typical uh, religious attitude variables, right, that have led to um, this perspective of, uh, of the God gap. And I also think they share really creative and strong theoretical foundations. Uh, both papers kind of begin with, um, with profound theory and, and try to test them. I think they do a really good job there. Um, I like the idea of norms and internalization to get at, again, this kind of conditional impact um, of these factors, as well as uh, the perspective of individualistic versus communitarian perspectives on religious attitudes. So that's my praise, and now for my little nitpicky points about the uh, papers. Um, so the, the equality norms piece, the Monson piece, right? Uh, a, a really exciting paper, huge potential to tease out these factors. Um, from the candidates that actually possess them. Um, but I really worry about comparing a demographic baseline to a candidate in the midst of an election. I think, uh, in particular, the primary election is a very particular election, right? And if you're asking somebody from mid-January to late January, what do you think of a black candidate um, in 2008, in January 2008, I'm going to associate that personally with Barack Obama. Um, and so having a baseline, uh, kind of thinking of a baseline of this um, uh, random black candidate, uh, I'm not sure is, is perfect, right? I think there's some sort of association between this key black candidate running, uh, Barack Obama, and that baseline demographic. Um, and then again, the primary campaign is a really particular campaign. I think the pro, uh, the kind of the benefit of looking at this during the primary campaign is that we have these different candidates, right? And we have a framework for comparing these kind of demographics that we're interested in that, that we haven't had before, and that's really fascinating. On the other hand, we know kind of two things about primary campaigns, and then that's one that there's a lack of information about the candidates, right? We've, I mean, if you if you ask the electorate, I'm surprised if they know more about Barack Obama than you know, than the fact that he's black and a Democrat. And I'd be really surprised to see that outside of New Hampshire and Iowa and at the extreme end of the educational and informational scale, right? Um, and then the other thing is there's really little knowledge of candidate viability. So when we're asking for um, assessments of these candidates at the national level when these campaigns are very directed in the primary camp, uh, during the primary and particular states, um, and we don't have good cues about uh, who's going to be the candidate for the Democratic Party, right? This, uh, I think our um, evaluations of these candidates are a little suspect, right? I think um, viability and information both are working kind of against your um, uh, against any sort of good evaluation of the candidate, right? Or of any sort of valid or real. Um, evaluation of the candidates. So I think the impressions of the candidates are, are a little bit suspect this far out, especially in the 
uh, in a national sample, even though it's, prim even though it's a primary campaign. Um, also, then, then there's the comparison of the list experiment to the direct experiment. I have a little bit of a problem with this, which, um, which is that you know, if the questions from the list experiment uh, are shown to be higher in, in your little bar graph, or in other words, that the respondents are more angry than uh, the respondents from the direct question, um, that suggests, you know, in the theoretical framework that you propose, that um, that this norm of equality, whichever it is, is less internalized, which makes good sense to me, and that's why you need this measure, right? It's kind of justifying the use of the list experiment. But I'm not sure what it means when the reverse is the case, and uh, you kind of you kind of can skip over that because there's such a small difference. Uh, there's five and four point difference when the reverse is the case, and you kind of say, oh, well, these are so comparable that maybe, um, maybe they're the same. But I, you know, theoretically, I want to know more about what that would mean, especially since two out of the four of, uh, of those factors are actually in that direction. So at least, you know, some sort of, um, you know, theoretical understanding of what that should mean. Um, okay. Then the, uh, moving on to the Maccabee piece real quick. Uh, I, I think this paper is really well written, uh, first of all. I, re I really got intrigued right in the beginning when you're talking about Weber versus Durkheim and these kind of two different religious perspectives. And we've gone down this road where uh, I guess it's Weber that's won over and the God gap is proceeding and, and uh, it's kind of the predominant uh, factor. Um, and I really like the symmetry between this theory and your data analyses, particularly the factor analysis that kind of shows, look, what we should expect from the theoretical model really plays out uh, in the factor analysis, um, except for the divergence across the years, right? So this is ANES really stuck it to you here by changing the wording. Um, I'm sorry about that, but then that really gets me questioning that measure. Uh, I guess it's Leagy's measure, the, the, the Eucharist measure, right? So why, why does this load so drastically different in, across these two years? Um, maybe it's a very invaluable... Um, variable, but it doesn't mean a lot to me if it's kind of not fitting that theoretical framework. And, and uh, I don't know what you can do about that, right? You can write an ANES, a complaint letter. Um, so, and then, uh, so, uh, and then more nitpickiness uh, about the, uh, the kind of model here. Um, you, you did it in your presentation, but I was really hoping that uh, you kind of go through all the cross-tabs in the beginning of your paper, and the only cross-tab you didn't do was um, the religious left cross-tab, was the uh, partisanship and, uh, and uh, the different religions or re religiosity, right? And so I was really hoping for that. I know you have a regression model, and the regression model basically uh, tells you the same thing, but um, I kept searching for that, hoping to see that first off. And if, as long as you're going to keep the cross-tabs in there, I don't, I don't see why one more would hurt you. Um, and this is kind of a general question I have for the audience, and um, you know I'm, I'm as much of a culprit of this myself as anybody. But kind of the stepwise addition of partisanship and ideology to the models suggests something missing in our theory of the paper, right? That we just kind of slowly add these in, and you just jump to saying this is the way this is the way we do it. And uh, I think you were a little more forthcoming about it in your presentation, where you're saying, okay. This changes a little bit of the relationships that we're interested in, but we don't really know what this means. And so, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear a discussion about that. I think if you're, if you're kind of bringing it in stepwise, then you should say, okay, why do partisanship and ideology 
effect in a certain way, which is kind of unaddressed. And then, uh, so, and, you know, along those lines, I think maybe the theory should suggest that relationship. Perhaps it mitigates uh, your your factors and there's good reason for it or it's a conditional relationship and you need to model an interaction term or something. I don't know. And then, uh, again, you're really forthcoming about this in the presentation. Pretty slim models, right? Just four or five kind of non-religious independent variables. And uh, I think the parsimony is really nice for demonstrating the impact of these variables, but um, these key religious variables. But um, I'm not really sure how to gauge the relative impact of them. And I think this is less. This should be less your concern on kind of after watching your presentation, more the concern of you know those of us who are going to use these measures and subsequent models of the 2008 election or whatnot. And so those are those are my nitpicky pieces uh, on your on your uh, papers. I just kind of wanted to open up some questions I had and some thoughts I had about the 2008 election to the audience and to you guys. Um, so I, I'm noticing in some of the discussions yesterday kind of a general embeddedness of both religion and race. I think Paul was talking a little bit about this yesterday or hinting at this. And what I, what I find most missing is kind of this interaction between race and religion. I mean, the idea of kind of considering them separately to me uh, doesn't, seem, doesn't seem right. I, I can't really think about uh, uh, Obama's religion without his race. I don't... Um, and... You know, I think his race continually being questioned in the campaign was part of that. Was he, was he really black? He had a white mom. He was raised in Hawaii. Uh, went to nice schools, Ivy League educated. His dad was Harvard uh, educated, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, then questions about his religiosity as well. Is he really a Christian? I mean, I think there's still a substantial, I forgot last time I looked, there's a substantial portion of, of uh, the population of citizens of this country who still think he's a Muslim. Um, and, and so these kind of, I think these questions are intertwined, is, is what I'm saying. And um, I'd like to see more about that interaction between race and religion, um, not necessarily in your papers, but uh, some sort of investigation of that. Um, and to what extent was this all conditional on what we know, know about the candidates? What we're kind of presuming in all these, in all these papers that I've seen is that the, uh, the electorate is pretty homogenous and knows that these candidates are black, Mormon, white, female. I mean, I know these are basic uh, um, demographics, but the electorate is really surprisingly uh, uninformed, right? And uh, our consistent assumption is that they have knowledge about these candidates, even when we're comparing, um, right, our evaluations or perceptions of the candidates to some baseline. You know, does knowing he was from a mixed family mitigate racist sentiment for him? I mean, I mean, the KKK would probably say no, right? But um, maybe some, some, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, affluent, just going to kind of, my white yuppie friends or whatever who get to know more about uh, Obama throughout the campaign and say, oh, you know, he's not, he's not Jesse Jackson who I don't like, right? Um, and, what is it about knowing more about these candidates that kind of changes our evaluation of these demographics that they come from? Um, so as you get to know these candidates over time, we can kind of tell them apart from these kind of basic categories of their religion or, um, or their uh, race, for example. Right? And people update, I believe, their beliefs about 
not only the candidates, but also about these social groups conditional on these candidates, right? Um, and so there's a little bit of a circular relationship there that I'm, I'm curious about and curious about your opinions. And I think uh, largely the focal points of these two papers and uh, a lot of your questions have been kind of trying to tease out these factors from the candidates themselves, really. How do candidates differ from these very basic demographics that, that they're thrown into? And um, I think you guys did a, a, gr a great job setting that up, and I'll just kind of leave those questions to the, to the rest of you. I suppose I should ask you guys if you want to respond to any of my, my comments before opening it up. chain of causality, sure. and statistically, the justification is if you want to look at mediation effects, then you need to estimate those different models so that you can assess the extent to which the uh, effects are, uh, for instance, in, in our paper, religiosity, are mediated by uh, some of the other variables like party issues. And so, obviously, the missing step in our paper, just to explain that better, talk about it. I'd add that over time, you see the, the, the more traditional God gap uh, become less evident in multivariate models uh, because of the, uh, the Republican Party kind of subsumed uh, evangelical Christians and, and become the major force in mobilizing them. Uh, and so they, they, as they kind of became one entity, Still see the God gap in a in a in a, in a cross tab very clearly, but it's in the in the model it's harder to get at, and that and that you can see this in some path analysis I think this some work with Jeff Lane and others that right. that have shown pretty clearly that that, that shift, um, and so that's one other reason to look at it in a stepwise way is that uh, it's become more difficult to, to get at when, when parties in the model. measure there of the Unitarianism mm -hmm. and the question when you're asking people 
and what does it mean to be a good Christian, and people to say that it means helping other people, basically, you know, turn out to be more liberal and more democratic and so on. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with religion at all? And whether, what if you had a question when you ask people, what does it mean to you, a Christian or non-Christian, what does it mean to you to be a good citizen, to be a good American? Um, does it mean uh, obeying the law? Or does it mean you know, helping your fellow citizens or helping those who are less fortunate, let's say? Um, and that you would find a similar effect. Uh, and that once you measure that, you know, the religious aspect of it, you know, so in some cases it may come from religion, in other cases it may come from something else. Um, right. yeah. And it may be picking up, you know, uh, ideology yeah. um, or some aspect of ideology. That's a great suggestion. That's one of the things that we like to, to test out in the future if we can get, you know, get some more data to do that. Yeah. I will say that some of the other work I've done using the uh, some of the parenting items from NES to try to get authoritarian orientations, um, those tend to um, have significant effects that are distinct from um, religiosity and, and religious tradition. Uh, and depending on what the dependent variable is, they may all have You want to follow, follow on this, Michael? Well, I was going to say the same thing, and Alan, and you answered my question. I wanted to know what the correlation was with the child-rearing measures, because that sounds like obedience versus yeah. whatever the, the other one is. Do you know the correlation? I don't off the top of my head for, uh, for OA. So I, I, I have, that's the next thing on my list to get to from the OA data set. But I just know from looking at those items from uh, the previous two elections that you find some Transubstantiation is really Catholic, Greek Orthodox belief, and yet 63%, regardless right. of wording, agree with it. Yeah. Uh, is that a problem with understanding what the question is asking, do you think, or is it a yeah. wording problem? Or you mentioned something about halo effects. All of the above. Okay. <laughs> um, here's what we think is going on there. Um, if you look, part of it is understanding. If you control for education, it begins to look a little bit more like what you suspect. Yeah. Look like, although still there's still um, some strange patterns. Um, a lot of this, particularly for African Americans, has to do with uh, literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and I think we have a footnote about this in the paper. Uh, I don't remember the exact percentages, but uh, it, it's pretty clear that that's part of what's going on. That, that people who interpret the Bible literally are much more likely to answer, "Yes, this happens," and it makes sense, right? That, you know, Jesus says, "This is my body." Well, there it is. Uh, in writing, so um, that's a big part of it, and then the third part is mentioned, probably desirability, and then there's obviously measurement error. So, anyway, that question, as worded in OA, that's a difficult question. Should, should <laughs> it shouldn't be used again. I mean, yeah. it's not. Yeah, I think you need a list of experiment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My question is for Quinn. I'm, I'm interested in this this question of um, of norms. Willingness to vote for a particular type of candidate. And specifically, I wonder if we have to distinguish um, Mormonism from, say, gender and ethnicity. Um, there's good evidence to suggest that people stereotype black or female candidates as being more likely to be liberal. But there's nothing intrinsically uh, connected between race and gender on the one hand, or 
beliefs of another. But Mormonism is a belief set. And, and, and indeed, if we had any other set of, of um, groups identified by a belief set, the respondent could reasonably conclude that the belief set has policy implications. So there's two groups of people who are telling you they won't vote for a Mormon. Some of them don't like Mormons in a, in a, in a biased sort of way. And some of them don't like the policy basket that they assume right. is of Mormons. And I would think that that's a much bigger effect than you can see for I, I completely agree. And, and it's, it, it's what kept us in the paper from, uh, from using you know, the word bigotry to describe it. Because it, in the context of, say, Proposition 8, California, uh, you know, there's a group of people that, that were, were against Proposition 8 who very understandably are unhappy with Mormons, right? Uh, and, it, you know, what do you say to that except, yeah, I get that you're unhappy. <laughs> uh, I can see why you would be unhappy. And that's not the same as, you know, out and out saying I wouldn't vote for a black person because he's black. Uh, I, I agree. So I, maybe that's not as clear as it should be in the paper, but. But we did, we did, I did, you know, step back and say, I can't really cross that line and label it in the same way that I would for gender or religion because I don't, I agree it's not the same. Can I follow up on that? Um, because I think where you might be able to go with that is to just get the subset, and I think you have those results just for Republicans and others, mm -hmm. when you compare it to the Baptists, that to try to then push out what the differences would be in those expectations um, of that, those policies beliefs that would come with it. We would expect that they might be uh, more conservative on social uh, family issues and other things like that. So if you already have those subsets of voters, uh, really I think where the action here was is in the Republican primary to figure out how many uh, evangelicals or you have to, to break up from Mormonians uh, who might agree with some of Most the, all of the yeah. policy prescriptions and, and are then you would be able to better isolate just that anti- yeah, it's it's clear to me that the real hurdle for Romney moving forward is the primaries, not the general election. The people that are against uh, him in the general election wouldn't vote for a Republican anyway. It's you know they wouldn't they they, they dislike Romney as much as they dislike George W. Bush and you know, see that it's the same. So yeah, I think that's a good way to go. I don't know that I have the sample size to do much or other questions in this particular survey to do much with that, but. Yeah, uh, just two quick things. One, uh, uh, this, uh, this guy I met at ICPSR in the summer, his name Ozon has written a paper, it's fascinating stuff. He says that Obama lost votes not because he was black, not because of his religion, well, but because he's a Muslim. And he's published papers on this. And he's got very convincing evidence. So I just want your thoughts or not on that. It's quite interesting. And then the second thing, with Quinn, you know, I've done a, I've read a lot of these list experiments, and what I've noticed, this one's about race, is the earlier they are, the more uh, racial resentment you see. Earlier? Earlier in time, the list experiment is done. The one with the strongest effects is the sociologist at NYU that they did a couple of years ago, really right before the campaign, you know? before the campaign got going, but the, the, the list experiments I've seen, and yours included, farther along the campaign, the racial resentment effects uh, 
diminished to the point where you don't even see it. I don't have any answer for this. It's just very perplexing. I, I think it's people are thinking of Obama when they're answering the generic questions. You can't probably make. what's going on. But I, I don't know that I can but you, demonstrate that. I, I, it's just very weird. Well, I've seen, I, I've watched uh, Lynn Fabric and Simon Jackson Jackman prevent, uh, present uh, a, a list experiment with different wording at APSA, and they got a lot of blowback from the audience about the fact that they didn't find an effect for, for race. Yeah. But it's almost exactly the same size as mine and, and not significant. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's the same, same, same timing, similar timing. So yeah. I haven't seen some of the earlier ones. I, I guess I need to look at facts. A big, big study by these sociologists, uh, 2007, NYU, I can give you okay. They find huge bias. Nearly as I can tell, it's a well-done experiment. A bigger sample, it's an actual sample, actually. It's a really, uh, you know, the time share. Oh, okay. I'd like to see that. So, uh, following up on this point, a list experiment, I think people have gotten, kind of jumped on the list experiment bandwagon, and there are a lot of issues with the design of list experiments that I think have not been carefully sorted out. And, I mean, in the case of yours, as you acknowledge, right, I mean, how do we even interpret these results? Because it's in the middle of a campaign where people don't think hypothetically about a black candidate. They think about, you know, they put a face to a black candidate. And so, um, and beyond that, so Adam Glenn has some um, work on list experiments talking about how you can just get just off-wall results with these list experiments depending on your response categories, and not just with respect to the ceiling effects, because I mean, we're we had four items. Yeah, I mean, we're, looked pretty good, but I mean, there's just a lot. I think there's a lot about list experiments that we can't just take on their face, and and I think in particular when you're dealing with trying to ask about a generic when there's an actual that gets attached, that we have to be really careful. The other part of it is is that oftentimes we don't explain to the respondent why it is they're getting covered. So. So in terms of you know the, the lack of effect, I mean you you say just tell me the number and not the actual, but people go through these list, you know these survey questions so quickly that there is is not necessarily you know people figuring out logically that oh by giving a number I get cover and can you know answer honestly. I, I think the, the the way ours is worded is a particularly harsh. Big, a large hurdle. I mean, you have to be angry or upset. So we could use, you could use gentler wording and probably get a bigger effect. Uh, uh, use, you know, uncomfortable with or something, and people might uh, might be willing to express that. And then uh, I was thinking about this in the context of all of the presentations yesterday about racial resentment, and those are really finely tuned measures compared to this one. You know, you have to directly say, I, you know, a black person serving as president makes me uncomfortable. That's that's a pretty blunt statement to make in com comparison to all of the racial resentment measures, which give you, I think, in some a lot of cases, some ideological cover, right? Uh, so, that this one doesn't give. So one of the things about your response options, though, is they are completely, so you have a political survey, and all of a sudden you're asking about, are you angry about athlete salary? Right. I mean, so to the extent that people are paying attention, you know, and you see on the list the one political item happens to be about a generic black candidate, right. 
you know, so on the one hand, I would say, okay, people aren't necessarily paying attention enough to know that they have cover. And on the other, I would say, okay, well, also these respondents are not necessarily stupid, and so you, they might kind of see through that this is really. We know, we chose to replicate this particular wording in part because uh, there is a there is some work on a Jewish. Uh, Vice presidential candidate that, that Ken Wald and some colleagues collected that we wanted to compare it to. And then there's this POQ piece that was published in 07 on a woman serving as president. And we replicated that exactly to, to see if we could get a comparable result, which we did. Uh, and, and also because we were using this Paris Interactive Survey, which is an online sample of uh, some questionable. Validity. Uh, so we wanted a little bit of cover there. If we could get some comparable result on the gender item, then 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 we wouldn't have hopefully as much trouble making the case if there was some external worry. I hate cutting off from one of the livelier discussions we've had, but I think this gives us an opportunity to ask them a lot of questions over lunch. A uh, couple of details. Uh, one, for people who are heading to a plane this afternoon, I uh, want to check in with Dana. I think there's a possibility that we'll organize a van uh, to the airport. I think there's three people going out at relatively similar times, not identical. Uh, and also, as you can guess, I'm potentially interested, if I ever have some spare time, in terms of thinking about publication of these papers. But on the other hand, I've got no way of guessing uh, which papers are already committed. I know some papers are already committed elsewhere. I know some papers were finished uh, about two nights ago. But you know, if you if you are potentially interested, give me some kind of clue if you would in that regard. Without not making any kind of promise. But uh, thanks much again to the panel. There should be food out there.